Hi, my name is Ari Stein, and this is the 52 Insights Podcast. This week, we're sitting down with one of the most insightful minds in the world of finance and business, Gillian Tat, the chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large of the Financial Times. As an author and anthropologist, she sees the world a bit differently than those she sits next to at the Financial Times, a world primarily fed on greed, growth, and endlessly opaque terms that keep most of us in the dark. In fact, she was one of the first insiders to raise the alarm about the coming devastation of the 2008 financial crisis, and how right she was. As part of the continuing moral and ethical fallout that we're still experiencing from that crisis, she's written a new book called Anthrovision, part manifesto and part memoir, a new way for businesses to navigate the modern world. What I really enjoyed about this discussion is the way Gillian is able to weave through disparate areas of life that include AI, identity politics, geopolitics and cryptocurrency and bind them together, an intuitive generalist, so to speak. She sees the web between the disruptions and is able to see a path forward. Her training as an anthropologist might have something to do with that. In this interview, she gives us the anthropologist view on the crypto craze currently sweeping the world, her ideas on tunnel vision and tribal illusions that are ripping our society apart, and why all the power shouldn't be resting at the hands of geeks and technologists. She assures us that the zeitgeist is changing, and that with that, there will be coming turbulence. We can be assured of that. To mitigate this, we need to think more like amateur anthropologists, instead of putting our needs first, looking out the window and seeing how the other sides live. It might seem like a simple sentiment, but it's one worth being reminded of over and over. I hope you enjoy my discussion with the editor-at-large of the Financial Times and author of Anthrovision, Gillian Tech. Gillian, it's great to have you on the uh, 52 Insights podcast. I'm delighted to be on the show. Thanks for including me. Of course. Um, So you are the chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large of the Financial Times in the US. Um, you are also the author of a number of books, including The Silo Effect and Fool's Gold. Uh, but you're the author of a forthcoming book called Anthrovision, A New Way to See Business and Life, which will be out soon. What I would love to kind of know, get a sense of, just from reading the book, of how you made the moral leap from studying wedding rituals in Tajikistan decades ago as an anthropologist, which um, at at that time seemed like such an earnest pursuit to heading up a giant media conglomerate like the Financial Times. And I guess what I mean by that, giving you some context, is reading the book, I got this sense that there seems to be a jarring disparity between the work anthropologists do uh, namely listening, you, you always think when you think of anthropology, you think of empathy, understanding the other, and the world that the, finan- the Financial Times embraces, which I guess is a world built on the belief of growth and rigid systems and capitalism and perhaps even by some measure greed. How do you square the two? Well, like many things that happened to people's career, this wasn't entirely planned. In fact, if you told me, 25 years ago that I'd end up doing the job that I have been doing for the last few decades, I would have been absolutely shocked beyond all belief. 
But the common thread that unites anthropology and journalism, or journalism at its best, is passionate curiosity and a desire to try and understand how the world works and explain it to other people. And anthropologists do that very slowly and patiently and humbly for a usually fairly small audience. Journalists try to do that quickly, um, often with great brevity, often with stereotypes for a large audience. But it's really about being fundamentally, deeply, obsessively curious about the human condition. In my case, um, I did my PhD in anthropology based on fieldwork in Tajikistan, studying wedding rituals. Um, that's a tiny corner of the Hindu Kush, the Silk Road, tucked next to Afghanistan. And initially, I started work, writing as a journalist, really as much because of human rights reasons as anything else, because there was a very brutal civil war in the community I lived in, and I wanted to write about it. And then I started write, freelancing for the FT, because frankly, in those days, there weren't many Western papers that were interested in foreign policy issues in places like Central Asia. So I did that. One thing led to another, and I became fascinated and hooked by, by the world of journalism. And although I didn't plan to start writing about economics and finance at all, when I first became a journalist, I thought that I'd spend my career writing about small wars and being a war reporter. I quickly realized that although I'm trained in culture, if you want to understand the world as it exists, you can't just look at culture. You have to look at money flows and where money's going. And if you just look at money flows, though, and don't look at culture at all, you can't understand the world either. Bankers tend to do the latter. Um, anthropologists have sometimes done the former in the past. So I set out in my career to try and combine this twin perspective of looking and finance and money, but also trying to put it in a cultural context. And as I say, explain the world and scratch that curious itch. Yeah, and I guess, you know, so much of what anthropology is about um, is about, you know, the translation of cultures or understanding cultures, it's something that you discuss in your book, which is the misinterpretation of cultures. Um, a couple of examples I loved was, for example, you discussed when um, American businessmen told Malaysian businessmen, um, you know, that their kids live uh, in their own rooms and the Malaysian businessmen were shocked at responding, aren't they lonely? Or, you know, when, when you mentioned Chinese citizens feeling noticed or almost embraced from, from being surveilled, born out of the trauma of, of um, cultural neglect, which feels like the total opposite in our culture. We, we, we hate anything having to do with surveillance. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, cultural misunderstanding and what kind of damage, you know, that's, that does? And more importantly, how the West convenes that understanding and forces it on other cultures? Well, absolutely. I mean, on the issue of the Chinese surveillance, um, there's a passage um, I describe um, which of work that Intel's been doing, looking at how facial recognition systems are perceived in China versus America. And the point is simply that in China, um, facial recognition systems are often seen as being less capricious and less intrusive than many of the government bureaucratic um, surveillance systems that Chinese people have been living with because you know, computers can't be bribed and computers are often in some ways seen as being fairer than people. Um, so that's a very specific cultural context, which um, might seem almost quite offensive to Western eyes. But the key point is that 
Um, whatever you think about facial recognition technology, whether it's good or bad or anything else, um, there is a fundamental issue, as Genevieve Bell, the anthropologist at Intel, says, which is that just because it's your viewpoint, you can't assume it's everyone else's viewpoint. You know, if you are an Intel engineer living in Silicon Valley, you can't assume the world thinks like you do. Um, if you're an in Intel engineer sitting in the C-suite of a big tech company, you can't even necessarily assume that your own customers in America think like you do. And we have to be always very willing and open to listen with empathy to what others say and without preconceptions, even if we're sitting in a position of power, um, or rather, especially if we're sitting in a position of power. Yeah. But I think what worries me the most right now is that the modern day superpowers like China, like Russia to a certain extent, and the US seem worlds apart. And they all have such a different idea on how they run their own state, but how they see the future mapped out. And I think to me, empathy seems like such an enormously exotic word to these cultures. It feels more like a tit for tat show at the moment. How are we meant to heal those differences? Well, I think it's a very big issue and a very tragic issue. And what's really happened in the last few decades is that the world of the global system has become ever more tightly integrated um, in a way that means that we're all exposed constantly to contagion, not just of the medical sort, which we're living with in the COVID-19 pandemic, where essentially viruses can jump across borders and go around the world incredibly fast. But we're having contagions of the economic sort and the financial sort that we saw in the financial crisis. We have potential contagions of the digital sort with you know, cyber hacking, misinformation, politics, et cetera, et cetera. And the tragedy of the world today is the speed at which our interconnections have deepened and made us exposed to contagions has not been matched by growing sense of awareness or understanding of each other. In fact, quite the opposite. And the net result is that we're all constantly exposed to contagion to things that we don't understand at all. And the pandemic is a classic case of that. I mean, if people had been more willing to look at a place like Wuhan and not regard it as a strange alien planet, which could be easily ignored in a place like America, but if people have been open to lick, look, lick, looking and listening at Wuhan at an earlier stage, they might well have taken the COVID-19 pandemic seriously a lot earlier. Um, if people had looked at what happened with, with West Africa and Ebola back in 2014, they could have learned a lot of lessons that would have been incredibly useful. Um, instead, you had somebody like Donald Trump who dismissed African countries famously as, quote, shitholes. Um, and there was a complete lack of interest in the early stages of the pandemic in Washington and I should say in London in learning the right lessons from not so much West Africa, but even Asia which have been grappling with things like SARS for a long time. Um, and that cost everyone very dearly. Both the pandemic came with a shock because of a lack of empathy and curiosity, but also the response was disastrous because of that too. Yeah. Do you think a lot of this has to do with the transition of power? And I don't just mean the traditional sense of power, meaning um, nation state powers, but powers even coming from the likes of technology. Um, that, you know, the traditional sense, even the definition of power has changed? I think that basically it's a combination of things. On the one hand, the speed of integration has been so intense that in a way humans haven't been able to keep up. We've fooled ourselves into thinking that having an internet connect the world will automatically connect us 
um, because information can go around without realizing that the internet has also created the possibility of extreme customization in terms of the media sources we actually receive and customization of identity. And people go online and replicate and actually intensify whatever tribal allegiance they have in the real world online. So that again is a kind of you know problem. And on top of that, you do have also these jarring economic um, and technology changes that are making people feel ultra insecure. And when you're insecure, it's natural that you basically batten down the hatches and try to cling to your own. And COVID pandemic, of course, has made that worse. We've all been physically um, trapped in our homes and trapped increasingly in a myopic mindset because we know what our own little local social tribe are doing. We might do a few Zoom calls with friends and family elsewhere in the world, but because we can't travel and because we're grappling with such overwhelming challenges in our own backyards, many of us have become increasingly myopic without even realizing that. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in the idea you you, you talked about, um, you know, everyone's talking about racial bias and technology these days. Um, it's a very kind of rightly so fashionable topic, but something that you brought up in your book that I thought was interesting was um, the cultural myopia in, in, in technology. Um, this idea that the idea of progress in technology is, is quite one-sided. It's a one-sided lesson given by the West and, and um, the rest of the world is expected to take note and understand it. Um, I think that's quite fascinating. Um, it's not something that you're really aware of until you're reading it. Well, there's two or three points to make. Firstly, that um, you know, there's a natural tendency by techies to succumb to tunnel vision and to assume that the world looks at, the, looks at life like they do. It's a rational, sequential, code-based analysis. And techies in Silicon Valley, and I've observed this myself, often actually transpose the language they talk used to talk about computer code onto human interactions. So the people at Facebook would talk about things like the social node to describe the way they were designing their platforms. Um, but there's also been a tendency in the past for the techies to assume that the West, the Silicon Valley, was a hotbed of innovation, and they were developing brilliant ideas that would then get handed down to the rest of the world. Um, the rise of China, in many ways, has challenged that very fundamentally, because China is ahead in so many areas, whether it's fintech or um, to a certain degree social media platforms or AI. And you're starting to see ideas basically come across the border from China um, in a way that's quite fascinating. You're also starting to see a lot of bottom-up innovation in emerging markets. And this idea of reverse innovation coming from the emerging markets into the West is, again, um, gathering pace. Um, something which illustrates that, say, is M-Pesa, the um, digital currency, in, so digital payment system in Kenya, which um, is being brought into countries like America now, and everyone going, wow, isn't that new? Well, in fact, it's been around in Kenya for a long time. Um, so certainly the concept of innovation is changing, and that just underscores a key point about the importance of keeping an open mind and learning from each other. Yeah. What would you tell companies, I guess, if you're like working as an anthropologist and you meet some of those in your book who are really struggling to, to come to terms with the, the Western idea of technology? How would, you, how would you help them respond to that in their own way? Well, one of the um, ironies of the word technology is that it actually comes from Greek, meaning um, skill with words not skill with numbers, but skill with words or skill with knowledge. 
Um, and in many ways, technology is an amazing tool that has enhanced our lives to an extraordinary degree. Um, and of course, it relies on math to a large degree. And without math, we'd be nowhere. And let's all do a human praise to the incredible power of maths and algorithms and computers. But they only really work in an effective way if it's combined with human understanding, awareness, and skill. So communicating to the population at large about what's happening with technology and those computers is crucial right now. Finding ways to actually embed some sense of you know, human awareness um, or human oversight is also critical. Um, you spoke earlier about you know, the question of racial bias in computing programs and AI, which is a very real issue. Um, and you know, that's not necessarily done out of any malevolence. It's simply because if the only people designing computer programs and interpreting them are white men in their 20s in Silicon Valley, then that's going to shape how the computers are being um, used. You know, technology is not a cultural, it's not culture free. As I say, the word skill with words should remind us of that. Yeah, you know, artificial intelligence is going to cause all sorts of transformations and is already. I'd like to kind of get a sense from you um, what such an acceleration of power is going to do to the idea of culture and society. Um, you know, it, it will give us unwielding powers, um, but also deemed by many to be a curse in some ways. So so how do, how do cultures, communities, um, personas, individuals, governments handle such a powerful transformation? Well, AI is not an all-encompassing magic wand. Um, and the problem with AI is that it gathers data about the recent past and the present and uses that to scan for correlations to make predictions about the future, which is brilliant and often very valuable and insightful. But if the um, present is changing rapidly, and if the past is not a recent, the recent past is not a good guide to the future, then you can have problems. Um, so that's one point to note. A second point to note is that you know, AI can end up being so powerful and so incomprehensible to most people that there's a real question about agency and autonomy and control. And, you know, the problem today is AI programs being used to make judgments and people can't tell whether they're good judgments or bad judgments or even challenge them. Um, there are AI programs being developed to, to challenge the other AI programs. So you have AI watching AI. But all of this really underscores a key point, which is that in a world increasingly shaped by AI, we need another type of AI, which is called anthropology intelligence, not just to try and look at where the AI machines may be going wrong because of you know, starting biases amongst the programmers or because somehow they're failing to see the bigger context of changing around them. But you also need um, anthropologists to look at the power structures and how essentially often people who have the skills to actually understand this technology are reaping most of the gains at the cost of people who actually are having the technology imposed on them. And there's a growing body of research from people like Virginia Eubanks showing that it's overwhelmingly the poor and vulnerable who bear the costs of bad AI tools. What would you say the story of our time is? I would say the story of our time are three or four intersecting things. Firstly, the late 20th century was marked by tunnel vision tools like economic models, big data sets, corporate balance sheets, which were very bounded and excluded a lot of the things that really matter in life. 
And I suspect we're currently at a moment in history when the pendulum's being back and people are realizing that things that used to be external to the model, like social cohesion or the environment, cannot be discounted easily. I think we're also living in a time of obviously rapid technological change and digitization, which has been speeded up by the pandemic. And that is essentially, you know, challenging people's sense of identity, their lives, their livelihoods in a very radical way. And I think we're also living in a time of great geopolitical power balances because, um, you know, we're seeing Asia rising. We're seeing, you know, places like America struggle to be exercise global leadership. Um, you're seeing a shift in wealth. And that, again, is creating huge dislocating challenges. Um, and on top of all that, you have, you know, tremendous economic insecurity and inequality for many people. And the internet has simultaneously connected us all in a way that makes us exposed to contagions, but also encouraged us to retreat to social and mental bunkers in a very dangerous way. Yeah, and I, and I do worry a lot about that because we're living in a hyper-globalised world, as you mentioned, whether populists and isolationists like it or not, cultures are somewhat deeply intertwined and connected through technology and media, yet there seems to also be, as you briefly mentioned, a real emphasis on tribalism, the power of identities and individualism. And I, for one, believe that it's a curse, even though everyone's doubling down on it, it's, um, it's, it's going to impact our society even more over the coming years. It feels like every person has become a hashtag so these two forces seem to be competing for attention. How do you see that dichotomy in a sense? Well, I think what we need to recognise is that tribalism has always been there. Um, and we sort of briefly thought that the internet might, you know, remove that or reduce that. Yeah. Um, well, not just you, but if you look at the original founders of Twitter, people like Biff Stone and others, they all thought the internet would be a powerful force for uniting everyone and making a sort of common identity and common collisions and we all sort of you know mull around mush around together in, in, in cyberspace as a great big happy appreciated whole singing kumbaya um and they really thought that um and of course what happened was no sooner was the internet created and became big that everyone started splintering off and fragmenting because it became too big to handle and self-selecting into small interest groups and then tribes and so it's a function of customization above all else um, and the tragedy of the internet is it, it's actually accelerated the sense of customization and individual identity. And with that comes polarization. Um, there aren't easy answers to that. But I think we need to start by recognizing that, you know, we can only use tools like AI and the internet and digital technology if we do that in association with a very strong sense of what makes us human. Yeah. There's a story I tell in my book, which to me sums up a lot of the issues about a group called the Internet Engineering Technical, sorry, Task Force. Um, and, you know, these are the ultra, ultra, ultra computer geeks who actually built much of the architecture of the internet back in the 1980s and 90s. And when they get together, you know, they have to collectively make decisions on really important stuff like anti-hacking tools um, to stop things like the utility sector in America going down. It's a very, very timely issue right now. And when they actually get together and make these decisions, um, they operate with something called rough consensus, which means not so much a vote, although they all have the cyber tools to do that. They basically get together and hum. And they hum 
to indicate whether they are pro or anti something. And this, the, in many ways, it's astonishing because the geeks, above anyone else, are raised in a very linear, mass-focused world where you have to be rational and a very precise world because you can't just, you know, putz around with computer code. Um, but if you ask them why they do it, it's very clear they do it because they want to get a sense of the room in a more nuanced, three-dimensional way than you can with just a yes-no vote. They want to get a sense of who's humming loudly, who's not humming loudly, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's a way of saying that even computer geeks who built the internet realize that actually there are some things you can't do as well with internet tools. It requires human to human interaction and a sort of multidimensional um, sense of how to navigate the world, which anthropologists call sense making. And I think that's a concept that we all need to remember when we go back to work, you know, in the offices or not go back to work. I, I'm trying to get a sense of what that means. So in a sense, the end result, they would take kind of a temperature of, of pe how people hum in the room and then kind of decide based on that. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, when I tell people the story, they can't believe it. But this, this has been going on in the, in the IETF, the Internet Forum, really since the um, 1980s. And um, if you, can, you can watch it online. Very easily. I mean, none yeah. of it is all hidden in plain sight. None of it is hushed up, secretive. It's all posted on the internet. The problem is that the world of technology and computing is so complex that most people, including myself, don't understand it and shy away from it. Very much like the world of credit derivatives before 2007. Um, yeah. But they get together and they hum and they've been humming. And basically, you know, you can watch it on the internet. They basically, one person says, right, everyone agrees. Everyone who agrees with this protocol, hum now. And you get, mm. And then they say, everyone who disagrees, hum now. And you might go, hmm. And he sort of listens and says, okay, well, we disagree. So let's all scrap it. And that's what happens. Yeah. It's extraordinarily archaic and non-precise. Um, but that's the point. People who work in the internet sometimes realize they need um, less than or alternative to digital forms of communication to get stuff done. I like it. It sounds endearing. Um, you've, you've focused on the 2008 financial crash as well. Um, a lot of what you do is writing about money. Um, you have a platform called Moral Money. You've been quite vocal about the brazenness of the financial system and its uh, uniquely old ways, archaic to a point, and um, vocal about, you know, re-examining re the way these systems are wired. Um, you know, I feel like people are, are quite fed up, <laughs> excuse the pun, but, um, you know, I, I hope that we've learned from that crash in itself. I mean, you talk about not understanding AI. I personally don't understand, and I'm happy to say the financial system seems like these tools and, and these systems are just so foreign to people. Um, and it keeps a lot of people outside of the system and they aren't able to engage and so it feels very much top-down, and that in itself is part of the problem. Well, I couldn't agree more. And one of the ways that things have happened in the 21st century is essentially we've ended up with a system where geeks are controlling um, more and more parts of our lives, um, not because they're necessarily meaning to grab power and exclude people or do evil or anything like that, but because they're in control of a body of technical specialist knowledge that other people don't have. And not only do they feel little need to explain what they're doing to everyone else, but um, why does society basically have stopped asking questions? 
Um, and I was writing about credit derivatives in 2005, six, seven. And I was astonished because there were almost no other journalists who were covering it at the time because everyone thought, oh, it's very geeky and technical and boring um, until it wasn't. Um, and a similar pa- pattern could be said about the world of ad tech back in 2011, 2012. You know, what was happening in ad tech um, wasn't a secret. It wasn't a secret that political groups were starting to try and use that for their campaigns. But it wasn't until the Cambridge Analytica scandal exploded, then suddenly you had everyone going, wow, you mean this was happening before? We had no idea. Um, who's controlling this? And again, it's a small group of geeks. And the same thing could be true of much of the cyber world as well today, that most of us don't actually understand what's going on. Um, and in fact, it's fascinating that the Alex Karp, the CEO of Palenta, Palantir, which is one of the big cybersecurity companies, um, when they went public, he wrote a letter um, essentially saying how ridiculous it is that society has outsourced so much decision-making to a tiny minority of geeks um, who are sitting in corners by themselves as one tiny neglected social tribe, and no one's really monitoring them. They're not even sure they want that responsibility. But that pattern is really pervasive today. Yeah. Anthropologically speaking, just sitting on the financial sector for a moment, what I'm, I'm really interested to know, what do you make of the, of the crypto craze currently sweeping the world? I mean, for me, just watching it go by, um, it's it, it really is like a hurricane. I'm torn about it. I, I can't tell if this is a libertarian paradise in the making or the financial system finding another release valve. Um, And I also feel it's like a sign that the financial systems are losing control and and it's also a sign or, you know, shrapnel from 2008 as a symbol that people want more liberty, ownership and uh, encouraging new ideas um, in the markets and um, in society. What do you make of it? Well, I think in many ways, it's a combination of all of that. Um, And one good starting point to think about this is to think about the fact that that anthropology teaches there are really two ways of creating um, trust and cohesion that glue societies together and enable people to do things. One way is to use horizontal, face-to-face trust-based mechanisms, peer group mechanisms, where basically stuff gets done because I trust you, you trust me, we know each other, and we kind of agree together. And that works for small face-to-face communities. But when they get bigger, you get a second type of trust, which is essentially vertical trust, um, where basic people trust in institutions and hierarchies and leaders um, and things like that. Now, what's changed in the, in the 21st century is that digital technology means that suddenly you can start to get peer-to-peer horizontal patterns of trust across enormous groups of people. So when you get into an Uber car, the reason you do that is because you're not trusting in any central regulatory authority, but you're trusting that you have the wisdom of the crowd to give a rating to that Uber driver who will say whether they're good or not. Um, Same thing with Airbnb. Um, And in some ways, it's the same thing with Bitcoin, is that Bitcoin essentially is a mechanism to enable large pools of people to trust each other horizontally through using computer code and doing so without trusting in any central authority like a central bank or government. Um, It's not the first time in history we've seen this kind of distributed ledger technology. In fact, one of the first times you might saw a quasi-distributed ledger was actually on the uh, Micronesian island of Yap, 
um, where several centuries ago, um, essentially the island development system of putting records of money and value, well, not money, but value on enormous stone circles, which were too big to move. So they all kind of agreed as a group using horizontal mechanisms that everyone knew who knows which, who owned which stone. They didn't need to move them, but that was kind of a ledger process. And what Bitcoin does is basically do that on a massive scale through electronic records about who owns what. Um, now, unsurprisingly, any institution that's basically caught up in a centralized um, horizontal, uh, vertical uh, structure doesn't much like that. So you have you know, central banks and governments saying, well, we want to have some control. We want people to have trust in us in the same way they have fiat money. And people, the reason why people trust fiat money is because they're actually trusting in the higher authority. So you have a real struggle going on right now as to who controls money and value and mediums of exchange. Um, it's not clear where it's going to end. I suspect that distributed ledger technology is here to stay. I suspect that Bitcoin is probably going to be, end up being superseded by other versions of the currency, particularly greener versions, and that Bitcoin may end up being like the MySpace to Facebook or the AOL to Google um, in the sense of the first move that gets overtaken. Um, and of course, there's also this libertarian element. There's desire people to kick kick the elites and get involved in something. There's also a lot of simply get-rich-quick schemes and people don't understand how it works. All of that's playing in. But what I really find fascinating is that technology has found a way to offer people um, an existential crisis in, in numerous ways. So every time you think something is set in stone or a system, it, it comes and totally reimagines it or allows us to. And that's probably going to become the norm, and it has already. So I, I'm fascinated to kind of know from your side how do policymakers and bureaucrats and technocrats and politicians um, find what what do they do now? Because more and more I feel like they're becoming unmoored from this kind of central distributed ledger ledger of power. How, where do they find themselves in this kind of new world? Well, I think the first thing to realise is that the good news about what's happening is that it's turning us all into amateur anthropologists, yeah. both the combination of technology and the pandemic. It's caused so much disruption that we can't take things for granted anymore. You know, I mean, most of us, you know, two years ago, never bothered to reflect much on our social boundaries. Who do we consider to be in our in-group and out-group? Um, but when, when you have a lockdown, you have to think about that. We didn't think about you know, the rituals that shape our working days until we suddenly lost them or was trapped at home. Um, we didn't think about how we organize our space and how that reflected a mental map about how world work ought to work um, until we suddenly discovered we were in a home office and everything was scrappy and different. So, you know, the pandemic has made us think about our lives. And I think that technology, the rapid digitization has also done this because the way we communicate, congregate, you know, learn information, et cetera, is all changing. And I think that change will continue. I think it's going to be a very globalized change because, of course, what's different from earlier eras is that these changes and innovations flash around the world at lightning speed. And so the best advice I'd give is simply to go back to my starting point and recognize that AI needs a second AI, anthropology intelligence, and to set these technological changes in a wider social and cultural context. Yeah. So just, just to kind of round out um you use this phrase in another interview i like what you said which was a fish can't see water and it kind of 
I had to struggle to think about the way that you said that in a sense. In a sense, the way that you conclude your book is asking us to widen our lenses. And as you as you termed or coined anthrovision, so that everyone can benefit by peering outside their own systems. And I think it's one way to help <clears throat> mitigate some of the damage that, that we're seeing. Um, can you just elaborate for us, um, you know, what if anthrovision was a superpower for businesses and individuals, what would that look like, I guess? Well, I passionately believe that anthropology can be a win-win in the sense that, you know, the starting point of the discipline is that you go and immerse yourself in the minds and lives of someone different from yourself. And that different person can be, you know, a subgroup next door in your company or office. It could be a community down the end of the road you knew nothing about. Um, it could be a different online community to where you normally spend your time. It could be on the other side of the world, like Tajikistan. Um, you know, and of course, in the early days of anthropology, you know, it usually entailed going to somewhere far flung and seemingly exotic, like the Amazon or Papua New Guinea. Um, and by doing that, you essentially gain empathy from another point of view, an appreciation of difference, and an understanding of how you know other humans see the world, which is invaluable at a time of globalization and polarization. So it helps to understand others, but the other element of it, the second step is you can then use that perspective to look back at yourself. And like that fish that can't see water, or to quote another anthropologist, Ralph Linton, the last thing the fish would ever notice would be water because they take for granted. It's almost impossible to see the cultural assumptions you take for granted until you jump out of them. And so looking back means that you can often see all kinds of blind spots and things you might otherwise ignore. So if you're a company leader or an entrepreneur or a would-be company person who wants to know how can I actually embrace that in my own life or just a citizen or working for an NGO or any profession, you know, the first step you could take if you can manage to do this and have time is to literally jump out of your life, jump out of your professional orbit, go and spend time with an open-minded way, um, walking in someone else's shoes, even briefly. Um, just try to deliberately and actively look at another point of view. All right, Gillian. Well, thank you so much again. And um, it was a pleasure, pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. And best of luck to all of you listening to the podcast and figuring out how we all build back better. You've been listening to the 52 Insights podcast. I'm Ari Stein. Thanks to Portico Quartet for their track Endless and thanks to Joel Stein of Glass Maps for producing this podcast. Sign up to the 52 Insights newsletter and subscribe to my podcast channel to get access to my latest interviews with extraordinary people.